Well, good morning, and uh, it is my joy to uh, be here in uh, big country on the Lord's Day and to bring greetings from the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, your seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. And your pastor already stole my thunder because one of the things I like to do everywhere I have the chance to, uh, to minister the word is to first of all begin by saying thank you because of what you do each week as you give financially of your tithes and offerings to support the work of Southside Church, you are helping to make possible our work at Southwestern Seminary. Because of the generosity of Southern Baptists, around $7 million made its way to Southwestern Seminary over this last year, which is one of the most enviable realities of theological education today. We are able to give the 50% tuition scholarship to every Southern Baptist student who comes to our seminary because of churches like Southside and thousands of others that partner together to make possible a theological education that helps people be able to follow God's calling without worrying about how they're going to be able to pay for it. And we could not do what we do apart from churches like Southside. So on behalf of our 41,000 living alumni and our 4,000 current students, thank you for what you do to make possible our work. We are better together. And particularly, every time I have the chance to preach in, uh, in Texas, I'm very thankful to uh, let uh, Southern Baptist in Texas know that the Lord is doing a fresh work at Southwestern Seminary. And we certainly want to be the kind of institution where you feel uh, not just comfortable, but committed to encouraging people from this church when they are thinking about theological education to make that uh, two plus hour trip up I-20 to Fort Worth and to come home to the dome, as I like to say. Acts chapter eight is where we're gonna be at in God's word this morning. If you have a copy of uh, God's word, either in print or electronic form. When uh, people have asked me, what has it been like being the president of Southwestern Seminary over the last two and a half years? My standard response is, well, there were a lot of um, challenges uh, that I knew anybody coming into that position would step uh, into. You just know coming into a new position, there are things you need to fix and change and, uh, and deal with. But uh, let me tell you what I didn't know. What I didn't know was that uh, we would be entering into a period of disruption unlike anything any of us have ever experienced in our lifetimes, that little global pandemic we call COVID-19. So for example, if I would have told you uh, two years ago that uh, churches across Texas would have to stop having in-person worship services for an extended period of time, you probably would have looked at me and thought I was crazy. Seriously. If I would have told you that the face mask was going to become the new fashion accessory of choice. Uh, you'd have said, no way. And yet here we are now. And even now, people are still wondering, what is going to be the new normal? That's probably not going to feel normal for a long period of time. And particularly with, even this morning, watching uh, uh, news before coming here talk about uh, the Delta variant and this variant and this uh, spike here and this upswing and what is that going to mean? Are we going to have to, some areas are starting to talk about putting mask mandates back in and other things. And here, here's what we know. Uh, for many years, the, uh, the experts, and I put the word expert in quotes here, uh, used to use phrases like, well, you know, the best indicator of uh, future performance is past results. 
the challenge with that, though, is it assumes that uh, the conditions are stable and stasis. What does it mean when literally everything is changing in a way that none of us could have predicted, which should humble us and sober us in terms of trying to think about what is 2022 and 2023 and 2024 and 2025 going to, to look like? And that's why I'm drawing to Acts chapter 8, because Acts chapter 8, uh, we typically focus upon kind of the latter portion of the chapter and that great scene there with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch and all that, and that, that's wonderful, and, uh, but I'm not going there. I'm starting it right there in chapter 8, verse 1, because we tend to blow by this in English when we read these words in black and white, but I don't think we realize just how disruptive the situation was, and their response as the new covenant people of God, I believe, should motivate us in terms of how we think about our response. Let me go ahead and uh, begin with the end in mind. Uh, the theme is, uh, yes, everything has changed, but at the same time, nothing has changed. Everything has changed, nothing has changed. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, let me just invite you to follow along in your hearts as I share this word from God's word. And I am reading from the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB translation. This morning, Scripture says, Saul agreed with putting him to death. Now, let's just stop here to put a little context here. This is uh, Saul, of course, of Tarsus, who we meet uh, the chapter before. Uh, he is this uh, uh, almost monomaniacally focused individual who is bent on trying to exterminate or eradicate uh, Christianity. He's not yet to Acts 9 where uh, he has that uh, marvelous Damascus Road experience where he is uh, converted sovereignly and uh, majestically becomes Paul the apostle to the Gentiles and of course ends up becoming the one who through whom uh, we owe our salvation because unless you are a Jew by faith and race, uh, Paul is the one that God used to bring the gospel to us. But he's not yet to Acts 9. This is Acts 8 where uh, he is there agreeing with putting the hymn. And the hymn there is Stephen. Stephen, of course, we meet in Acts 6. He is one of the uh, first uh, deacons called to serve uh, the church. Comes out of a early church conflict related to uh, the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews about who was getting the better uh, share of, um, uh, of the uh, goods and the resources. Really a potential accusation of racism and favoritism and partiality there in that early church. It could have been very divisive. Uh, but instead, God brings forth a divine solution with those, the seven who were called to serve, Stephen being the first one that is mentioned, Philip, and then a bunch of other guys we never hear from again. Stephen, of course, is not merely a table waiter. He is a powerful, proclamational preacher of the gospel, an evangelist who in Acts 6 and Acts 7 just kind of lays it out in an undistilled fashion in terms of what the gospel of grace is to the point of which he's executed. He becomes the first martyr of the church. And at the tail end of Acts 7, as he is being stoned, Jesus receives him into heaven. And this guy named Saul is there holding the coats of those who are throwing the rocks and the stones, killing Stephen. That's the, the hymn here. And on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea 
and Samaria. Now, again, when we're doing our read through the Bible in a year uh, programs, we tend to just kind of buzz on by that and kind of roll on to Acts 2. But do you realize just how massive verse 1 is in terms of what has happened? Jerusalem. Jerusalem, which had been the epicenter of Christianity from the get-go. Jesus, of course, uh, when he came in his incarnation, uh, spent 30 years preparing for a three-year ministry, and that three-year ministry was centered around this. The Son of Man is coming to seek and to save that which was lost. And it would focus upon his going to Jerusalem to die as our substitute, our sacrifice, our Savior. And, of course, that happened on that first Monday, Thursday, that first Good Friday when Christ died, making the atonement for the sins of all who would call out to him in faith and repentance. He was buried and rose again on that first Resurrection Sunday morning, right there all in the vicinity of the city of Jerusalem. And you remember, of course, when he calls and commissions his disciples, he tells them to tarry but to wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And, of course, that uh, early church there in Acts 1, gathered together the 11, Judas is off the scene by this time, turns into 120 in the upper room there in Jerusalem, Acts 2. The Spirit of God falls at Pentecost. Uh, Peter preaches probably about 10 minutes. 3,000 are converted. You read there in Acts 2 and Acts 3 and Acts 4, people being saved every day, which by the way should encourage us. You know, people can get saved on a Monday afternoon. We don't hear much about it, but it can happen. They, they get saved on a Thursday morning or a Saturday night. Uh, it, it's marvelous how when the gospel goes forth, people are receiving Christ and being converted day after day in such a way to where uh, one New Testament scholar, B.H. Carroll, the founder of Southwestern Seminary, wrote that in a period of six months, the early church went from 120 in that upper room to over 60,000 believers. And that's with no buildings to call their own, uh, no resources like we think about. They didn't have all of the experts and the pundits and the uh, consultants to tell them how to do it. But the one thing they had may be that which we need more now than ever, and that is the undiminished, undiluted power of the Spirit of God. But there in Acts 2 and Acts 3 and Acts 4 and Acts 5 and Acts 6 and Acts 7, everything's happening in Jerusalem. It's interesting, isn't it? The apostles began preaching the resurrection of Jesus in the very city he was executed in. They didn't go 500 miles away to preach about a resurrected Christ in such a way people wouldn't be able to figure that out for hundreds of years. And yet, in one fell swoop, all but the apostles were scattered. And scattered in such a way, church historians tell us, the church in Jerusalem never gathers together again in the same way after Acts 8 as it did before Acts 8. You talk about disruption. You talk about change. In one moment, everything changed for these people. And we get some editorial details here. Devout men buried Stephen, mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. If you enjoy studying the New Testament, the word translated ravaging there is a hapax legomena. It's used only here in uh, the entire New Testament. It means with a kind of savage ferocity, with a kind of violence and virulence, if you will, in terms of the nature of what Saul was trying to do. He, he, he was bent in trying to make life as miserable as possible for those who are followers of the way. 
He would enter house after house, drag off men and women and put them in prison. This is hardly your best life now kind of stuff. And then notice verse 4. So those who were scattered raised their voices to God and cried about the unfairness of it all. No, but bless your heart, if there had been Baptists in that crowd, that's what we would have done. I mean, it is amazing, and not in a redemptive and sanctifying way, just how easy it is for us to believe somehow that the cross we are called to bear means life is supposed to be easy and comfortable and predictable and safe. It's been amazing in the last year plus to um, talk to pastors as they're navigating their churches through COVID. And it has grieved me in talking to leaders about, in many ways, the ways in which you can't win as a pastor. Because in the same church, you've got people who think we're not taking COVID seriously enough and people who think we're taking it too seriously. People who think we're not masking up enough, people who think, why do we even need to wear masks? And on and on and on. And a lot of pastors are saying, you know, uh, I, I missed that course at Southwestern Seminary on pastoring through a global pandemic. I forgot to take that class when I was in seminary. And the kind of conflict and tension that has happened in our churches about when are we opening up and how quickly are we going to get back to normal and what are we going to do in all this. Where it becomes very easy for us to take our eyes off of the Lord and our eyes off of the outside world and to put our eyes upon each other and our circumstances where we become very intramurally focused as if the church ultimately exists for the benefit of me. And that I am merely the the stackpole around which the church should operate. My feelings, my preferences, my wills, my whims, my wishes, all about I and me. And, you know, we haven't known each other that long, and I, I, I know it's not the thing you do the first time you preach in a church, but, you know, we're just going to go ahead and, and, and dive right in. I, I hate to tell you this, but the church does not exist for you. I, I'm sorry if that really disappoints you and uh, everything, and it, but it doesn't. The church is not here primarily to make you comfortable and happy. The church does not exist for you to always get your way. And really, more importantly, um, God doesn't care what we think about that. God's not sitting up in heaven saying, gee, I wonder what people think. Let me see if I can take a poll and get their opinion, and then I'll decide what I'm going to do. That's not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jesus. In fact, if anything, perhaps... And I certainly do not have any uh, insight into the secret counsels of God. But I wonder if he has allowed something like COVID-19 to occur in order to shake us in such a way to cause us to really take stock of what American churchianity has become that may and may not reflect the essence of New Testament Christianity. In fact, if I may be so blunt, we had it so good for so long that we got spiritually fat, happy, and lazy when it comes to actually fulfilling the mission that Christ has given to his church. 
And that mission is to do everything we can to make it as humanly impossible for anybody to die and to go into a Christless eternity where God's placed us. So let's read again Acts 8, 4. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word, proclaiming the message. It is shocking how normal those words are. It's as if nothing had changed, even though everything had changed. There's, there's no sense of these believers crying out to God about the unfairness of it all, their inconvenience, the change, the disruption, or anything else. There's almost a singularity of focus upon the mission. And maybe it's because they actually remembered the very words of Jesus there in Acts 1-8 when Jesus gives the Great Commission one last time. It's found in each of the four Gospels and in Acts 1-8 where Jesus said, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. What's happening? They're being dispersed from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and Acts 1-8 is being fulfilled in their lives. Before Acts 1-8 was a mission strategy to be adopted and adapted by your church, it was Jesus' original strategy for his church. And so they were able to see even this level of disruption, not as something that was foreign to God's plan for them, but as an intrinsic part of God's plan for them, which is exactly what we confess when we confess that our God is a sovereign God, that he really is in control, and that it is not nearly as important what happens to us as it is how we choose to respond to what happens to us. Because frankly, we have very little control over what happens to us on a day-to-day -day basis. If you don't believe that, just hop in your vehicle and get out on I-20. And you'll be quickly reminded just how not in control you really are. Because there's an epidemic of stupid that breaks out on the expressway. I'm just telling you. Uh, you see it, right? It's only by the sovereign grace of God any of us get from point A to point B in one piece. You may think you're in control, but you're really not in control. And maybe all that's happened has been to remind us that we're not in control, even as much as we want to think we are. And that what really matters is not the circumstances we find ourselves in, but our commitment to fulfilling the mission Christ has given to us. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. Crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Verse 8, so there was great joy in that city. Would to God that because of the witness and the work of the people of God called Southside Baptist Church, that there would be great joy in this city called Abilene. Because the witness and the word so sounds forth from you as you go. Because again, 
the essence of the New Testament church is not the fact that we gather together in a place of assembly on Sunday morning and we kind of check the box for the week. But it is how we choose to live as we go on mission for Christ day after day, moment by moment, in the various places where God will send you to be on mission and to be his witnesses here across this city and beyond. That's the task. That's the mission. And yes, there are more challenges today than there were in the years past. Is, is there increasing hostility to who we are and what we do? You betcha. Does that catch God by surprise? Not a chance. It's time for the true church to rise up and to take seriously the mission and the mandate that Christ has given to us. We don't know what's all going to be happening as we come out of COVID and what may be next. But one thing we do know, Christ's command to us the divine expectation placed upon us is to be found faithful as God's people, living on mission, witnessing in word and in deed, doing everything we can to proclaim Christ to those who do not know him. Sadly, we didn't always measure up in the pre-COVID era. Now the challenge is how we measure up in the post-COVID era. The decision is up to us. Will we be ones who respond with this kind of obedience that doesn't matter what the circumstances may be, we're going to be found faithful? Or we continue to allow our circumstances to determine what we do and how we do it, that it's somebody else's responsibility. That's why we pay pastors and we have others and we let the professionals do the work for us. Or do we recognize that the great commission and the great commandment are for all believers everywhere at every point in time. Nobody's exempt. Nobody's immune, excused. Whatever you may be, you're called to be faithful as a witness for Christ. Let's go do it. No matter what may come, let's be found faithful and let God make us fruitful. And Father, in Jesus' name, we're thankful for these moments together around your word. Your word is truth, life-changing, powerful, penetrating truth, authoritative, sufficient. And Father, I believe the problem we have when it comes to the word of God is not that we don't know what to do, it's that we've not really fully surrendered to doing the word, even as we hear it week in and week out. And so Father God, I pray for these dear people, I'm so thankful for the fact that each and every person here under the sound of my voice is not here by accident but here by divine appointment because there's a work you've called them to do not just to gather but to go not just to meet but to live on mission bless us dear church and these people O lord continue to have your hand upon the pastor and the elders and the deacons and the staff Lord, we don't know what all the future is going to hold, but we know who holds every bit of the universe in his hand. Help us, Lord, to be faithful. Make us fruitful, O Lord, for your kingdom service. Bless and anoint as we continue now in worship. For we ask and we pray all these things by the Spirit, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.